0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge, where I have with me voice actor Bryson Bogus here, who has voiced several characters everybody knows, including Mitsuru from Darling in the Fox, Takumi Aldini from Food Wars, Makumi from Diabolical Lovers 2, More Blood, Not Less, <laughs> Komanu from Chiharyu Furu, and I'm sure that he's going to correct me on that name because that's a tough one. <laughs> As well as Bell Crano from Is It Wrong to Try to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon? And Hinata from Haiku, to name a few. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much
1: for having me. And it's Chihaya Furu, and it was one of the harder names to read the first time I saw it. I was like, yeah, this one's got a long name. But yeah, thanks for having me on, and I'm
0: excited. Yeah, names are not my forte, as everybody knows (laughs) who listens to my podcast. But I am super stoked to have you on because you are relatively new to the voice acting community as you've been doing this for three to five years, somewhere in that range. A little over four years now, yeah. A little over four years, but I am very curious how you initially got involved in voice acting
1: so it's actually a little bit of a long story. So when I was a younger teenager, I actually enjoyed watching anime and reading manga and all that stuff just because my local library had a bunch of manga and stuff for us to read. And I would read it. And then eventually I got into watching a few anime outside of the typical Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh, Digimon, that kind of stuff that you'd watch when you're a kid and not realize that it's anime. So I started to become an anime fan when I was about 12 or 13. And I would just read the stuff, watch the stuff. And eventually I made the connection that Voice acting is something that can be done through anime. And acting, it was always something that I was always super inclined to do. I really liked doing theater. I had done a few things when I was a kid, just through like church and stuff like that. So basically, I had decided to myself, I was like, I'm going to pursue acting and if I can get voice acting in addition to that, that would be amazing so I can do all the fun voices. And then eventually I got training in theater and all that stuff and I went to anime conventions whenever I had the free time and I would meet with the voice actors and think it would be so cool to just meet them. And one of the voice actors that I would meet regularly at conventions was Chris Ayers and Greg Ayers, the two brothers. I'm Texas based. I've always lived sort of in the Houston area. They would always be at a lot of Texas conventions. And after a while of meeting them and getting to know them, especially Greg would talk to me a lot more about me wanting to get into voice acting and stuff like that. And eventually they have this thing called the Alliance Auditions in Houston, which is basically a mass theater audition where all of the different theater companies in the area come to this one place and watch a bunch of people audition. So it's one person auditioning in front of like 30, 40 people from the different companies. And Sentai Filmworks, based out of Houston, happened to be there that year. And Chris Ayers was one of the people that was representing them. And so my audition was placed right after their lunch break. And I was going in to sign in and everything like that while they were on lunch break. And Chris was just hanging out in the lobby, talking with some friends of his. And he recognized me. and He was like, hey, bud, we talked for a bit. And I was like, yeah. And like, I'm totally available if you ever need me for anything like that kind of thing. And he goes, well, let's see how your audition goes and so on and so on. And then I guess based off of that theater audition, he thought, wow, this guy's got something going for him. So after that, he called me in to do some extra voices for
0: the show that he was working on at the time. And it just sort of snowballed from there. And let's unpack that a little bit because I want to take a slight detour from the anime to talk a little bit about the theater because that's kind of your basis in many Mm -hmm. ways. What drew you to that in particular, really in middle school and I think in high school and you have a BFA?
1: Yes. I don't know. When I was a kid, I would always be hyperactive. I loved playing video games and watching movies. And I would always sort of copy all the performances. I was the stereotypical kid who came out of the movie theater, just spouting quotes from the funniest parts that I liked. And me and my brothers, we were all kind of hyperactive. And I think I remember specifically one of our favorite games was the eye toy for the PS2, because they had this game where you could just shoot these little five minute videos and watch them back. And our parents saw that we were doing that a lot of the time. And so they would try and get us involved in in church plays and stuff like that, and I just had a propensity towards just performance and acting out, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. So it was just always something that I enjoyed doing. We were actually homeschooled. I went to kindergarten and first grade in public school, and then our parents took us out, and then I was homeschooled until high school. So during that time frame, the only sort of exposure I had to theater or acting in general was just whatever movies or plays that my parents took me to. And then once I got to high school, I was like, I want to do theater, and I did theater almost all four years there. I think I took about a semester to start actually getting involved there. But yeah, I just started doing that ever since high school in terms of like taking it seriously and whatnot.
0: And then... I want to talk about that theater where Chris discovered you, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but that theater for the last 10 to 15 years has been a pull spot for both Funimation as well as Sentai Works. And also people from Rooster Teeth have been pulled out of that theater purposely for voice acting. So what was that like, really having that audition?
1: Are you talking about the university I went to or the theater that the audition was at? The theater that the audition was at. Well, the audition was at Stages in Houston, which... I didn't realize they had such a huge pool of voice actors coming from that specific stage. I did actually notice once I started to look more into the Houston theater scene, I did start to notice people's bios and stuff like, oh, also does anime and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. The reason I wasn't sure which one you were asking about was because I also noticed the school that I went to university and got my BFA from was Sam Houston State University. And there's actually quite a few people from there also specifically that have been doing a lot of anime and video games and voice over in general, like Joel McDonald came from Sam Houston, Shania Moore. There's quite a handful of people from Sam, including myself and a few friends of mine that got started there after I started there as well. So that's why I asked for the clarification because I was like, oh, yeah, it's pretty cool that I coincidentally fell upon the school and the theater that happened to find voice actors, apparently.
0: And so what was going through your mind and your body? You see Chris right before your audition and then your addition's happening and knowing that he's there and not really knowing what's going to happen.
1: Honestly, I feel like seeing him there and the fact that he recognized me like he said hi to me and he came over and he was like, hey, what's up? And we started chatting. And that actually kind of got rid of any nervousness I might have had, I think, because it just confirmed to me they know who I am. They want me to succeed. And I had up to that point, I had practiced my audition material. It was a monologue and a song. It sort of calmed me down and everything. I guess the idea of a familiar face being there. So a lot of people, they probably tend to get really nervous when they do see somebody that they know and they want to impress them and everything like that. Certainly there was little bit of element of that at the time where I was just kind of like, I want to show him what I can do and what I'm able to do, because that's what an audition is for, obviously. But I would say that it was actually kind of comforting knowing that he was there and
0: it was somebody that I was familiar with somewhat. And as the story goes, you sort of nailed your audition. (laughs) And you spoke to him before. You mentioned, hey, if you ever need me for additional voice work or anything like that, when did all that come about? And really, you getting to do additional voice work, sort of background voices is what they're known as.
1: It was about a couple weeks after the audition, the studio Sentai, they called and they said, hey, we wanted to get you in for an hour of recording with Chris for this show that he's working on. And that show was Dramatical Murder of all shows. And I don't remember if I was asleep at the time when they called me because at the time I was working overnight shift. So I would typically sleep during the day. So I think they called me and left a voicemail saying to call them back and schedule time with them. This is four years ago, obviously. So some of the details are a little fuzzy, but I just remember hearing it and just pacing around my apartment and just like, this is it. okay, yeah, I got this. Just freaking out with how excited I was to finally like actually get into the booth and do something for anime and voice acting in general and everything like that. Because up to that point, I did start off doing amateur projects online through places like the Voice Acting Club and the Voice Acting Alliance, but it was just fan projects or flash animations for Newgrounds. Nothing like professional level, but I had that sort of experience working on those things, which I think sort of lent itself well and helped to solidify myself with them in terms of showing I can do this and I have experience voice acting. Maybe not with anime specifically, but I have experience with mic technique and
0: pacing and all that stuff. So
1: I think that sort of stuff just sort of helped short story long I was very excited
0: and what was that like going from theater and stage and really being trained in that basis to going into a sound booth, because I don't know if many people know this, but anime is recorded for the most part alone.
1: Yes, honestly. And like I said, I feel like because of my experience in doing those amateur projects in my little like homemade isolated booth that I would have at my apartment, I had my booth set up much like the closet that I'm talking to you in right now. It's set up as my own little personal recording space. So that sort of experience, I think, helped me in knowing just how to play off of no one else being there i guess and even that aspect of it was a little bit easier than just being in this nebulous void because with anime you are recording by yourself but you are also listening and you hear the performances of whoever recorded before you and then you also hear the performances of the japanese so you can sort of inform your delivery a lot better that way than if you were just talking into nothing which is a lot of what i was doing before doing anime with those smaller fan projects and stuff i would be recording to nothing. So it was actually a nice change of pace in that regard. There is definitely a big difference between voiceover and theater just in terms of projection. Like right now, I'm actually kind of talking in a little bit of a projected voice just because I think I talk clearer when I talk that way. But with voiceover for like anime or something, it's pretty similar to film in that you don't have to play to the back of the room. You don't have to project as much. You can just be there and quiet things down and make things more intimate versus being on stage you have no microphone and you have to project your voice to the back of the room. So just technical stuff like that is fine. But a lot of the performance technique in terms of like emotional understanding of what's happening in the scene, what you need to do, a lot of that stuff tends to play over pretty well in both ways. And then another technical aspect of theater, I think is different, but also helps is the fact that diction is very important in theater, making sure that your words are understood. And that's even more important for recorded stuff. So you want to make sure you you pronounce and enunciate your words really well. So I think theater really helped out with that as well.
0: And now that's a lot of technical stuff. And I kind of want to back out of the technical side, because I think a lot of people are here to talk about the characters you voice.
1: Of course, of course.
0: And one of the ones that I want to start with, and we might be going slightly out of order throughout this entire progression for the rest of the interview, and I'm sure some technical stuff will be woven in there. I want to start with is Gel, who's a fun character from the Gatchaman mm. series.
1: That was one of my first named roles that actually had anything to do directly with the story. That was a fun experience. When I found out who the character was, so sometimes they'll tell you the show. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll tell you the character in the show. Sometimes they won't. I wasn't told either. So when I got to the studio for that session, I looked at the contract that they had for me and it had the show and the character's name. And I immediately started going on my phone looking up the character while I waited for my session to start. And I looked up the character and I was trying to find images of him. And it was this little red alien kid and he has a very like girlish kind of face to it. I was like, oh, they they can't have me for this character. Maybe it's like a reboot or something like that. And they go in And they're like, oh, it was that little kid. And they just wanted to go with a male voice for him because it's implied that he's a male character. And they wanted me for the young voice and Chris Patton for the older voice. And they thought it was perfect casting because they tended to compare our voices. A lot of people said that I had sounded like a young him. And a lot of people said I looked like a young him. So, yeah, that was a fun show to work on. And I got to have that goofy sort of catchphrase that he has with the get no, no,
0: no, no, no. So that was fun. And to talk a little bit about that, because some directors love when their actors and voice actors come in knowing the series and knowing the character and some hate it.
1: It just depends on the director. A lot of the directors I've worked with, they don't seem to have any sort of harsh or like extreme opinion one way or the other. Some of them kind of see it as, oh, he knows what's happening. We can work faster because he knows the scene and he knows what's going on. And there's validity to both where some directors will think, well, I don't want them to know anything because I want their reactions to what's happening to be sort of genuine or as if it's the first time they're seeing it because a lot of the times if it isn't a show that you have seen or if it isn't a show that you're familiar with this is the first time you're seeing a lot of this stuff it's the first time you're seeing the script it's the first time you're seeing the animation and everything like that so there's definitely validity to both trains of thought I feel but I haven't worked with anybody who's like don't watch the show or go home and do your homework and watch the entire thing in a weekend
0: yeah and I talk about that because I think gachaman is a really interesting one to start with and you've worked on other franchises and other reboots that we're going to get to, but Gatchaman does have a particular following. People are hardcore about it who like this show. So what is that like for you when you come into a show that does have a rich history and that has a fan base that's already built in, whether it's a reboot or it's an extension? How does that affect you if it affects you at all.
1: In the moment, it doesn't really affect me too much when I'm like in the booth working on it. It more sort of affects me whenever I go to conventions or meet fans of shows that I've been in. Ironically, I don't think anybody's ever approached me and recognized (laughs) Gelsadra, at least not from crowds. But I have had people come and recognize Hinata or Belle or something like that and tell me that this was their favorite show. I think Darling in the Franks, you mentioned Mitsuru. Somebody at San Japan this past month, she came up to my booth and she was just saying, you know, this Show was just my favorite, and your character was my favorite, and his arc and everything. And it felt like she was about to cry just telling me this. And it sort of just made me feel like what I'm doing can be really impactful, and I appreciate that a lot. And like I said, it's not something that you really think about when you're in the booth, you're more focused on getting the lines and getting the takes right and making sure that the performance is right. So, a lot of the exposure we get to the fans' reaction to these things is when we're at conventions or we see people post online about what it meant to them and all that stuff. So, it definitely makes. Makes me feel good whenever I hear somebody liked my performance in something or they were a huge fan of something and it had a deep meaning to them and that they liked my addition to that sort of world, I guess,
0: if that makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And there is a franchise <laughs> I do want to talk about that. I don't think you get much credit for. And I think it was a real <laughs> change in your career. And we're skipping a few support roles. But this role was in <laughs> 2017. And it was you as Ren in Blade Runner Blackout 2022. Ah, yes and that's interesting because Blade Runner which is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick he did The Man in the High Castle it's got a comic book out now the movie Mm -hmm. came out and it did somewhat well what was that entire process like?
1: I had no idea what it was when I was working on it like this was one of those projects that was super super secret sometimes the script will have the name of the show that you're working on but this script had a working title like it had a fake name and so I would see on Facebook book, they have these ads from Crunchyroll or just like random anime news sites where it's like, the director of Cowboy Bebop is making a Blade Runner anime movie to tie in with the latest Harrison Ford movie. And I was like, okay, that looks cool. And this was after I'd already recorded for it. And I was like, oh. And then we started working on the new Netflix Seiya reboot with a few people from that creative team that was there. We were introducing ourselves. I was explaining some roles. And one of the producers at Sentai, he was like, also he was Ren in the Blade Runner thing. I was like, in the the what? And so like I found out like two days before it came out that I was in the Blade Runner movie. So I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. And then when it came out, I watched it. It was only like 15 minutes and I was like, oh, OK, because I only had a few lines in that. And I was like, I'm nobody in this. And then I watched it, and I was like, oh, I actually progressed the story here. So I thought that was pretty cool retroactively, like seeing that and being like, oh, wow. And I know that that is a big franchise and it was crazy. So I tend to announce on Twitter when I play a character. And then I'll also go on my personal Facebook and I'll like change my profile picture to a recent character. I don't do that as often. as I used to but I'll announce it and then all my family and friends are on Facebook like oh my god you're in Blade Runner like freaking out and everything and to this day Blade Runner is actually one of those movies I still need to see the original one and the new one but it's definitely one that interests me and I know I need to see the official director's cut not the theatrical cut with all the mundane voiceovers but that's one of those things I need to check out
0: and to continue talking about this because I think it's so interesting because this (laughs) became canon And it's obviously expanded the Blade Runner universe and you're now indoctrinated and a part of that thread of history. When we talk about confidence and confidence boosters, and I speak to a lot of wrestlers when they have big matches, this is kind Mm -hmm. of that same feeling the way I'm viewing it as an outsider. How do you view that? Considering that this is kind of a defining moment of your career,
1: it definitely felt like that. When I found out, I was just like, wow. Sometimes people joke about waiting until they'll get this one role and feel like they made it and everything like that. And I feel like that sort of experience, it made me be like, oh, yes, I'm such a huge name now. I'm in Blade Runner. It definitely put things into perspective that what I'm doing is like legit. It's going out there and it's part of something bigger. Because up to that point, I think I had already done Don Machi. I think I had done Chihaya and. I had already started getting the ball rolling with a few other roles and stuff here and there. So I was like, yeah, this is cool. And my worldview, because I hadn't really done very many conventions up to that point, it was just like, hey, I do this cool thing. And I told a few friends and they're like, oh, that's neat. We're theater people. We don't care about anime. So it's like, "Okay, this is just a cool thing that you do. And then once that thing came out and I found out like, oh, this is Blade Runner. And I post that and I'm just like, this is a big deal. It's not just, oh, that's cool, whatever. Get back to doing a musical or something like that. But it definitely felt really cool to me at the time to be like, yeah, I'm doing relatively big projects out here sometimes. And it's great. And that's not to say that the smaller projects aren't super cool, because there are some really neat smaller projects that I've gotten to work on as well. But it was just one of those things where I was like, wow, this is
0: crazy. And now we're going to transition again. And you just mentioned Chihaya Furu. I think I said it right. You said it about as close as I'd ever gotten to saying it right. It's a tough one. But the character you play is a very interesting character. He's a bit antisocial it's a little bit out there I'm in love with my desk yeah yeah he's got a desk <laughs> fetish <laughs> so how did you really get into that character? And one of the nice things about this anime is that you actually get to see that character evolve. And in other shows and in other roles that you've done, sometimes you don't get that nice progression.
1: Usually the characters that I get to play tend to just be my regular voice, but higher or my regular voice, but lower. But for him, I really got to play it up. And they said that he's this nerdy kid. Just look at him and come up with a voice for him and everything like that. And I came up with a little bit more of a nasally voice for him, just kind of nerdy because he's got that kind Kind of look about him, and it's a lot of fun to be able to play in that regard. As for his progression, it is pretty cool. Just because a lot of shows you work on, they tend to be shorter. A lot of modern anime, it only lasts 12 to 13 episodes, but this show was two 24-episode long seasons, so there was a lot of that, and the characters really had the time to grow like that, and I always enjoy it whenever you get to see this character go from this meek, timid guy who is insecure about his place on the team, because he did just start off as this character that they brought in because they needed more members so they wouldn't have to close down. I feel like he comes into his own and realizes that he does serve a purpose on the team as sort of the helper who can help research and figure out other team strategies. I do like when characters are able to have that sort of upward mobility in terms of just how they feel about themselves or as a character.
0: And this answer is very important because you were in Diabolical Lovers More Blood as Mukami or Ko. Ko Mukami, one of the Mukami brothers. And he's a fascinating character, a little disturbed. A lot of them in that show are. And this was the second season of this show. So this wasn't the first. So what was that like coming into an already running show, popular show, sort of set the tone already with the first season? And then you <laughs> get casted and you're like, what is this character?
1: So the show was actually really short. It was only 12 episodes, but they weren't even like full length episodes. They were like 15 minutes each. So my experience with the show itself has really been... I don't think I've ever actually watched the show all the way through. It's not really my cup of tea in terms of the kind of show it is. But recording it was a lot of fun because they had him have this really kind of creepy monologue where he's telling this tale of how he was abused and used by a bunch of rich people and all that stuff. But he's telling it like it's this children's bedtime story with the happiest look on his face. And it just sort of has this creepy vibe to it. And it is kind of fun to be able to play those sort of off-kilter characters who got these scenes where he's like the nicest one. to the main girl and everything like that. And he's super chill and he brings her roses and then he's like, all right, so what are you going to give me in return? And just that switch flips and he goes into this sort of just demented sort of hatred. And it's very fun to play just those two opposite ends. And it was the first time I got to say fuck in an anime when he's just like, don't fuck with me. It was crazy. And another fun element of that was the first time I had to make sucking blood sounds in the booth, which the director for that show was Chris Ayers. And he had described making those sounds as like, like, just suck on the palm of your hand. And it was like, oh, all these super insider tips on how to make it sound like I'm draining a woman of her blood. The recording of that was a lot of fun. In terms of how it plays into, like, the whole being a second season a continuation of the story, I wouldn't really be able to say too much on that in that regard, just because I'm not super familiar with the plot lines or all that stuff. But I have had a decent amount of fans come up to me and be like, hey, can you say the nickname? Because he calls the main character Massa Kitty and all that stuff. And I definitely get a lot of fun fans coming up to me from conventions because of that show, but it's definitely one of those that I probably wouldn't personally watch on my own time.
0: And to talk about this, this is obviously a dark Show. Yes. <laughs> and it's dark in the sense that more disturbing dark versus more adult dark. And Dan Machi tends to be a little bit more adult, especially with the second season. And so, what is that like for you, though, to really get to be into a darker role, a more adult oriented show versus a kid's show, kind of like Gatchaman was?
1: to me, the darker side of humor and all that stuff, that just kind of never really bugged me a lot of the time. So it just feels like business as usual most of the time. So I'm just kind of like yeah, this is the situation. I don't remember if you mentioned it earlier. I was in Monster Musume which is a very adult show and just working on those more adult shows like I said, I've never had a no, when it came to sort of the darker side of humor or just topics. So honestly, I could work on a super demented character and feel the same way as if I'm working on Mickey Mouse, it doesn't really feel any different to me.
0: I think the hybrid is Food Wars. Where Food Wars tends mm. to be a shonen, it's not over the top, but there are moments that have yeah. sexual themes to it. There are humor, the food to some degree in some of the scenes tends to be sexualized. And in that Mm -hmm. show, you play Takumi Aldini. Aldini, yes. Aldini. He's a lot of fun. He's Um, the Italian, in case you couldn't figure it out.
1: Yes, Aldini. He's got his trattoria in Italy. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. And I like him as a character in general because when you first see him and he's first introduced, he's sort of presented as this kind of cool guy who's going to take him down a peg. And he's super cool. But then, like, it's almost immediately undermined by his short temper and just his propensity towards the dramatic. And everybody makes fun of how dramatic he is. And it's great to see like he starts off as this chill, cool dude who who thinks he's so awesome. And then everybody looks at him like, that's ridiculous. You're funny. And when growing up, I always loved the rival characters in shows that ended up being friends with the person they were rivals with. So like you have your rival's That at least early on, your Gary Oaks from Pokemon were rivals, but they're also jerks and they're not friends at all. But then you have in Food Wars, Takumi and Soma. It's a rivalry, but there's mutual respect. And eventually they become pretty good friends by the most recent seasons. And I always think that's a super cool element to people that are competing with each other is when they can respect each other and just have this really nice friendship in addition
0: to that. And to talk about Aldini a little bit, because... He is sort of a support character, but he's sort of not because he has his own arcs and he is the focus of a few episodes every now and then, and he kind of tends to be the spotlight, and that's kind of a cool thing to be in where you're elevated both support non-support in the background some episodes more than others so what is that like to kind of have the best of both worlds with this character
1: it's always nice because in some shows there's a huge cast and Food Wars does a huge cast and there's always characters that stick out as your favorites and a lot of people they'll find their favorite characters in the shows and I feel like it makes it easier to like stand out in a cast if you're in the background sometimes but they'll give you your time to shine in episode 68 or whatever it's pretty nice to be able to have that just being a recognizable character, but also just on the technical side of things, not having to do as much work as the main character, which I mean, I love doing the work and everything like that. It's just also scheduling and stuff.
0: And Food Wars is sort of having a weird release, the way it's done, the way it's airing right now on Toonami and how I don't even know the full schedule of the English premiere and all that stuff because it airs at like two in the morning now on Toonami.
1: It's only midnight for me in Texas. <laughs> but I found that was super cool whenever they announced that Toonami was showing it because I had done bits and Walla in a couple of Funimation shows while I was working on Darling and the Franks, like Black Clover, which was on Toonami and all that stuff. But it was just like one line of, hey, what's up? But it was super cool to me that I play a prominent character in this show and it happened to be on Toonami. It's like crazy. I'm on TV now, mom. Hi. In terms of the release schedule, we typically don't really know much about what's going on in that regard either, so we're just as much in the dark as you guys most of the time. But I know that Toonami, they just started it from the beginning because it had never been aired on TV yet, so they just started it from the beginning of Season 1, but I think Season 3 is coming out early 2020, but I don't remember a specific date. But as far as I know, it's just the Blu-ray release. The Blu-ray release is going to be coming out just with all of season three at once. And then I don't know what Toonami's plans are because I don't work at Toonami, but I would assume that they're just going to play the seasons as they appeared on the broadcast. If you want to watch ahead, you got to get the home video releases.
0: And now to shift to the other adult character that we mentioned, and that's Belle from Dan Machi. And that show Mm -hmm. is something else and sort of starts out a little bit innocent to some degree. And Mm -hmm. given the second season, and I don't know if you've watched ahead, but it gets darker without ruining too much, because I don't want to ruin things unless you want to ruin it.
1: I don't want to spoil it for (laughs) anybody who's listening who might not have seen the second season. But yeah, it definitely does get a bit darker. We're working on that show right now as a dubcast. But the episodes that are out on High Dive right now are just starting to get into the main arc of this season. And definitely a lot more adult and dark compared to the first season even the beginning of the second season it was a lot more heavy and it felt like the stakes were a lot higher whereas in the first season i feel like part of the reason for that is because the first season you got to introduce the characters you got to make sure that everybody knows who everyone is and you got to show that growth of him whereas in the beginning of season two we already know everybody so what are they going to do now so let's take him down these paths and start to really tell stories and it's like whoa crazy. I guess because I've been desensitized to some of the even more adult shows Don Machi at least up until this second half of this season it never really felt to me like a very adult show I mean the title is Is It Wrong to Try to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon and it shows no shame in being like oh yeah hot girls and obscured nudity but it never felt like egregious compared to a lot of other shows that I had seen up to that point and that might just be me being desensitized to it it still very much felt like a PG-13. It never really felt very R to me. That's
0: yeah, what had describe it is that it initially started out as a fan service show and now it's become more of an adult show and I feel that what you were saying with the PG-13 is that the show has almost grown with its audience to some degree.
1: I feel like that as well because it took a while for the second season to come out now that I'm thinking about it. the first season was 2014 which was before I even did any voiceover and then they dubbed it two years later when I happened to be there so I lucked out there. It's been a while since that first season came out so that does make sense that the content has aged with its audience
0: Essentially, and one of the other shows that and you weren't in this show that I'm going to mention, but Ruby has done that very well. And I feel that Don Machi has done that also extremely well. I mean, how do you feel that that progression has gone? I mean, I think you sort of answered it partially.
1: I think it's really cool that it did start off in that sort of more tame. Let's introduce the characters, get you to know them and everything like that, and then eventually lead into what it is now, where it's telling more serious, higher
0: stake stories, basically. And you also got to work on the movie, which is 2.5 yes. or almost a miniature series season, and that's Arrow of the Orin.
1: That one was really fun thing to work on. It kind of reminded me, just that movie itself, I think it was written just as a movie. I don't think it's based off of any source material from the light novel or anything like that. I could be wrong, but I don't think it is. And it just sort of reminded me of those older anime movies, like your Dragon Ball Z movies, where it could possibly be canon, but it's just sort of its own standalone thing. And honestly, I can't really say because I have had exposure to the series, but it feels like it explains itself pretty well to where anybody who's never even seen the show can watch it and still be like, okay, cool, I understand what's happening. But then again, I've seen the show, so I don't know what's going to go over some people's heads or not. And we worked on that before the second season came out, because obviously the movie came out first and like I said before, it had a lot higher stakes in terms of just character drama compared to the first season. And I don't want to spoil anything because the movie is still not even out on home video for the U.S. yet. So I don't want to spoil anything, but it definitely goes like the current season. It goes to a lot higher stakes.
0: And I think this transitions us perfectly into haiku where the stakes are getting really high going into season four and season four is coming. So how did you become Hinata? And are you short? I'm
1: not short. I'm not particularly tall either, but I'm 5'10", so that's about average height for a guy. That one was fun, and I like to tell this story, it's kind of funny, how auditions at Sentai are few and far between. Typically, they'll cast you, if they know that you're going to be good for a character, they'll cast you as a side role just based off of, we need to get this show done, who can do this? Okay, here you go. But usually, they typically tend to audition all of their lead roles for things. So I auditioned for Haiku on the same day that I auditioned for Monster Musume, and they were starting to work on Monster Musume first because it had an earlier release date and they had a shorter time frame to work on it so we auditioned for both of those shows and then about a week later they're like oh congratulations you got Monster Masume. I was like okay cool then I don't hear anything about Haikyuu for about a month or two I was like ah I guess I missed that one and then like a month or two after we're done working on Monster Masume, they're like Okay, also, congratulations, you got Haikyuu. So let's start scheduling that. And I was like, oh wow. So I just got two auditions, two for two in the same day and working on Haikyuuu. It was definitely a lot more intense than anything I had worked on before. The closest would probably be Don Machi, just in terms of the action and yelling and all that stuff. But it didn't hold a candle to or Tons of shouting, a lot of grunts, and just playing games, training camps where you have to run nonstop for like 30, 40 seconds in the booth. That doesn't sound like too bad, but if your body senses that you're breathing heavy and you're not going anywhere you start to get lightheaded so that was a challenge but it was also a lot of fun because it had that high energy to it and me and Kyle the director we would always have a lot of fun coming up with a lot of their snarky quips and stuff like that and Hinata himself is this big ball of energy that's always a lot of fun to come back to all that we've recorded up to this point was season three which I think is coming out soon as well and season four I don't even know anything about whether or not we're going to get to work on that but I really hope we do because I'd love to come back to that show. It's one of my favorite roles that I've gotten to do. And it's also a show that's made me appreciate a lot of sports anime. I've never been a sports guy, but watching this show and a couple other sports anime since then, I'm just like, wow, this is cool. I like how they animate it and how they heighten a lot of things that you don't really pay attention to when you're watching real sports, because watching real sports is super boring compared to watching anime sports.
0: And how has the reception been? Because sports animes in the last five years and I run a sports anime panel at several anime cons has grown tremendously and the genre has increased by, oh, yes. say at least three or four fold at this point so how has this been received and how is it at cons for you because people like this show
1: it's great I think it's been received pretty well I get a lot of people coming up that recognize me because of Haikyu, and I've signed a lot of box sets and prints and artist alley designs and all that stuff they come up to me and they're like oh you did a great job I love the little small redhead fireball boy and all that stuff. It's great. And then going to conventions, I just see Haikyuu cosplayers everywhere. If I don't see Q cosplayers, I see some cosplayers from Yuri on Ice or from Free sports anime is definitely a huge thing now. I remember when I was a kid, early days of being an anime fan, when I was at my local library, they had Prince of Tennis and they had a bunch of those manga volumes. And I would just read those. And I was like, yeah, this is cool because my brothers played tennis and I actually knew the rules and everything. And then I'll just read this and that'll be it. But then watching Haikyuu and seeing a lot of these other shows come in, I'm like, you know, sports anime is pretty cool. I should probably watch more of these.
0: And you also mentioned Monster Misume, and this show is something else, and your character has his hand full with a bunch yep. of monsters
1: and marriage. Quite literally, his hands are full
0: with monster things. But, you know, we would all trade ourselves for his life, considering
1: what's <laughs> going on. Maybe. I don't know if my body could withstand all the pain.
0: So how did you get into that character and what was it like playing it? And obviously it's a comedy, it's a fantasy, it's a horror <laughs> show, for lack of a better word. I had always heard a lot of stuff about it
1: going into it. I never watched it before working on it. And I still haven't watched it all the way through, but he's in a lot of the show. So I've seen a lot of the show just through recording it. But I had heard a lot about it. I knew what harem anime was, but I had never seen extreme harem anime where it was super etchy. i had only seen Don Machis or something like that, where it was only kind of, sort of, sexualized bringing back my audition the first thing I see from this show is that opening scene where he's wrestling with Mia and her boob pops out and you see full nipple and everything. I was like, oh, hey, it's one of those shows, ain't it? So <laughs> that was definitely a very interesting first exposure to the actual show after hearing so much about it. But seeing that and I was just like, oh, this is going to be fun in terms of just the craziness. They had me audition and then they had me do a callback for him just to say, we liked what you did performance wise. Can you just lower your voice a bit, make him sound a little older? Because I tend to play a lot higher characters like Bell or Hinata. But for him, They wanted me to age him down a bit because he was a bit more mature and he talks a little bit lower and it was something that I was not used to at the time. So it was definitely an added challenge on top of just yelling from the pain and awkward situations. But I think working on that really helped me develop sort of that skill of working a bit of my lower range and a lot of fun. And we cracking jokes half the time when we were in the booth watching a scene, recording it, finishing it. And then we'll just be like, well, all right, that one's for the fappers. There you go. (laughs)
0: Speaking about crazy shows, and this goes in the complete opposite direction of this show, and this is Darling in the Fracks.
1: That show was my first Funimation show, and it was great because I got to work with Clifford Chapin, who was a friend of mine from back when I used to do the amateur stuff because we both started off doing online work with friends and stuff like that, and he was one of those friends that I made during that time, and I saw him like when he first started working at Funimation. I saw him when he first started getting roles and started directing and all that stuff. I was like, oh, cool, great for him, and then eventually I went up to... Dallas to record some stuff for Britney Lotta and Matt Shipman for a yaoi that they were working on called I Know Kusabi. And I guess Clifford saw like, oh, he's willing to drive up to Dallas. Let's put him in a thing I'm doing. So he cast me in Darling in the Franks. And that show started off like, oh, my first session, he had two lines. My second session, he had three or four lines. And that was it. And I was like, okay, he's just going to be like this sort of He's there. He's part of the main cast, but he's not going to be this huge deal or anything. He's just going to be there. Little did I know that he would come to be the second biggest plot line in the show. He was the main B-plot, and I was just like, oh wow, this is crazy. Because he just starts off as this snarky jerk that has no redeeming qualities at all, and he just grows into this genuinely nice guy that just defies all expectations. And because that show was a simuldub, and it was an anime original show, there was no manga to go reference to see what would happen ahead of time. There was no light novel to go see what what happened ahead of time. It was just you found out what happened when the episode came out the following week. And it was like, wow, what a crazy ride for a character that starts off so peripheral and starts to take center stage at some points and to me has one of the deepest character arcs that I've been able to perform. So it was definitely a great experience to be able to do that. And I would love to do more shows with characters like that. It was a great experience.
0: And there's some fucked up shit that happens to Mitsurō yes. to put it politely. And that's the censored version. So what was that like? And we're going to talk about Seven Seeds, which is sort of also similar to some degree of messed up stuff, too. But <laughs> not like Monster Masune, the complete opposite of that.
1: Like I said, it was definitely an experience that I was not used to. I have worked on shows where they did have sort of that darker history or dark things happening to them. Like I said, with Ko from Diabolic Lovers was recorded two years before this. It just takes sort it of, to
0: a new extreme.
1: Exactly. And a lot of the worst stuff that happens to him, I feel, happens right as something is turning around for him so like he's starting to get better he's starting to get better and he's become this really great guy and then something happens and it's like all that was for nothing and it was terrible and it was the worst ever and then you get at least earlier in the series a lot of his initial trauma just stems from what happened to him in the past and having promises broken and being upset about that and holding a grudge about that and learning to cope with forgiveness there's a lot of layers to this guy and yeah like i said it was a great thing to work on.
0: think it's fair to say if people actually watch this show and see it they'll get what we're talking about
1: i try to avoid spoilers for newer shows just in case anybody listening hasn't had the chance to watch it and i
0: don't want to ruin it for them and now i briefly want to touch upon seven seeds because it's also in the same category of being dark like darling in the fracks and being that psychological messed up level so what was that like
1: I had very limited exposure to that one. So Netflix produced that anime and that dub, but the studio we were working at, the stuff was in a low resolution. It had watermarks all over it to make sure nobody leaked it. And my character in that show, at least at this point, isn't very prominent. I don't know if he comes to be more prominent later in the manga or anything like that, but really, I don't actually know too much about that show in general. It's a weird one. I've heard it gets pretty dark, but yeah, I'm actually not too familiar with it,
0: to be honest. And then the last show we're going to talk about, and it's a reboot, is Zodiac Saint Seiya, Netflix Mm. remake 2019. I'm not 100% familiar with this show, so you're probably going to have more knowledge about it, but I know it's a remake. I know there was an original, and then there was like a bunch of spinoffs, and it's got a rich history to dive into. So, what was that like coming into it as Netflix? I don't know if they reanimated it or if they took old animation and redubbed it.
1: If you're not familiar with it at all, the reboot is a full ground-up reinterpretation of it. They had told us that when Saint Seiya came out originally, it didn't do too well in the States. So what they wanted to do was have this new series appeal more to a Western audience just to expand the fandom over here. And I've heard the reboot is actually doing pretty well in Japan right now as well and it's had a pretty decent reception here in the West as well. One thing about it was they only released the first six episodes of the season so far, so I don't know when they're going to be releasing the rest of the season or anything like that because Netflix going to Netflix. It's definitely one of those shows where I saw it and I was like, wow, this is huge because I know even though the show may not have become as mainstream popular in the West as say like Dragon Ball Z or something like that, it definitely sort of has that history behind it because it came from the 80s and it actually kind of predates something like Dragon Ball Z and it definitely has its dedicated following and I was aware of that with the fact that I've seen the anime fandom and the manga fandom and I had seen a lot of things about Saint Seiya. I didn't know too much about it. I had never read it or watched it or anything like that. But it was crazy to be like, oh, wow, this is an iconic character that they're trusting me with. And working on that show specifically, it was 3D animated from the ground up as well, where we recorded to just moving storyboards and animatics and stuff like that. So versus our typical day at anime work is we have the finished animation in front of us right next to the script. Whereas with this, it's a little similar to American Prelay, but not as much because it is still somewhat timed to the storyboard. But we don't see the finished animation We don't see all the mouth movements and stuff like that. So it was a lot more free in terms of timing and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun and being able to... I guess, not have as much restriction on delivery compared to your standard anime where you have to fit timing on top of doing a good performance.
0: And you just mentioned that the first six episodes are out. Yes. So what can fans expect within those six episodes? And there's more to the season and there's probably going to be additional seasons. I don't know. I don't know if you know. But what can yeah, fans I... expect in these six episodes and whenever the rest comes out with this anime and your character and the progression of the show and everything that's going on? Silatus.
1: All right. So this first six episodes, you're going to get introduced to the world of Saint Seiya. And if you're a fan of the show, they keep it somewhat similar to the original story with a few changes here and there. Some that fans might like and some that they might take a little bit of adjusting to. But it definitely has a lot of good action scenes, a lot of great animation fights. I feel like the animation looks really great compared to a lot of 3D anime that I have seen. Like some 3D anime, they'll have this low frame rate kind of look with cell shaded design. But this is more akin to something like a video game cutscene where smooth movement but higher quality models and I think it looks really great a lot of really great fight scenes voice acting I like to believe is pretty stellar with a great cast not just myself but like Lucy Christian Patrick Poole Blake Shepard a lot of great cast members in that show so yeah if you're a fan of the show check it out and I'm pretty sure that you're still going to enjoy it and if you're new to the franchise it's definitely a great introduction I believe
0: and now I think we covered a boatload of your career and I know we missed certain things (laughs) I don't want any flack for it but I am curious because you've been doing this for four and a half years five years Mm -hmm. at this point what advice do you have for people who want to pursue voice acting and acting in general because you've done both
1: I would say Because a lot of people say get started in theater, and I certainly did. And theater definitely has helped a lot of people that do it now. And it definitely gives you that sort of element of experience in performing itself. Because voice acting, like acting anything else, is more about the performance than how your voice sounds. But I feel like that's a very good piece of advice that a lot of people give but I know some people that don't like to go up on stage or people that like to be behind the mic I know people who work professionally that would never do theater I know people that work professionally in voice acting like Kimlin Tran who was misfortune and skullgirls and a few other things she only does voiceover she doesn't do theater and stuff like that so I would say if that's something that you want to do that is very valid I would say if you are looking to only do voice acting then definitely take voice acting classes if they don't have anything Thing local to you. There's plenty of professionals out there who have much bigger resumes than myself who offer sort of online workshops and stuff like that to get you sort of up to snuff and they have that experience and knowing what the professional world is looking for. And definitely gain experience in what I did is going to places like the Voice Acting Club. They have a Discord. They have a forum. There's Casting Call Club. There's a lot of online venues where you can practice working on smaller projects, indie projects, some paid, some amateur and and non-paid, but it's experience. And anyone will tell you that experience helps. With anything, you're not gonna hop into the booth one day and then just know what to do right away. So I would say take voice acting specific classes and just get practice in through those methods.
0: And finally, I'd like to give you an opportunity to promote yourself. Do you have a Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, website? Any roles that you can announce that are coming up?
1: No new roles that I can think of right now that are coming up soon. I have a Twitter at Bogus Bryson. I have a YouTube channel, Bryson Bogus. Right now, I'm doing a series called Singing Sundays, where I sing a song that. Either I feel like singing that day or a request from fans. So I have videos of those coming up every Sunday on my YouTube channel, Bryson Bogus. I also stream live on Twitch, TV slash Bogus Bryson. I do that three nights a week, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays at this time. And I think that's about it. Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube are the three main places you'll find me. And then I also have a website, just brysonboggess.com. If you want to look at my full resume...
0: And now I would just like to say thank you to Bryson Bogus, and as always thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast and we can be found on iTunes SoundCloud and Stitcher Radio and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts and while you wait for next week's episode you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime comics and pop culture as well as give us a follow on the bird that is Twitter and that is at popanimecomics check out our Facebook page popanimecomics. I do a lot of Facebook live events up there so check that out as well as follow us on instagram at pop anime comics i have a pro wrestling t-shirt shop that is pop anime comics on pro wrestling tees i have an elf holding a steel chair as my shirt and she gets very upset when people don't buy my shirt and she will jump (laughs) off the shirt come find you knock on your door in 2d dimension hit you with the chair repeatedly until you say i'll buy the shirt so (laughs) please do not make her do that and just buy my shirt because it totally supports this podcast and keeps it free and keeps me happy and more importantly doesn't get you hit by a steel chair and until next week everybody have a wonderful week